Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to another episode of Hedge Fund Huddle. As usual, I'm your host, Jamie McDonald, and today we are talking about quants. What on earth are quants, I hear you cry? Well, in this case, quant stands for quantitative trading, and quants are those individuals trying to make money from spotting patterns and correlations using complex math models and algorithms. Now, if you don't already like or follow us, please do so now. It's how you hear about our latest news and the next episodes. And also, we want to hear from you. So feel free to write to us or leave a review. Now, as you know, these episodes aim to demystify the world of hedge funds by talking to experts. And today, we do exactly that. I'm lucky enough to be joined by two such experts, Nirav Shah, founding partner at Versa Investments, and Tarun Sanghi, a senior quant at Starmine, which is, of course, yet another London Stock Exchange Group business. Tarun and Nirav, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Jamie. So, Nirav, there's a lot going on there already. There's lots of words to try and explain. But before we delve into vocab and, and unpacking this topic, perhaps you could just give us a bit of an insight into your own career and when and how you started Versa. Sure. Uh, thank you for having me. I am super excited to be part of this podcast. I have two decades of investment experience. I'm a founding partner at Versa Investments, which is a New York-based systematic investment manager. Versa was set up 10 years ago to focus on uncorrelated systematic strategies using large amounts of data, advanced statistical techniques, and an hypothesis-driven framework. My background is a combination of quantitative research, finance, and engineering. Uh, at Versa, I've worked on various parts of the investment process, ranging from research to portfolio construction and trading. Prior to Versa, I was the founder of a consulting firm focused on quantitative research. Prior to that, I was based in New York and Chicago, working as quantitative researcher in, in the hedge fund space with different hedge funds. Summarizing, you know, over the last 18 years, I've had tremendous opportunities to work on various areas of systematic investment process, including asset allocation, risk management, portfolio management, and building scalable trading and proprietary research systems. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. So Tarun, let's turn it over to you. Tell us a bit about yourself and about Starmine. I do remember Starmine from my days on the equity research side of UBS. It used to tell all the analysts on our team whether they were any good at their job, basically. But um, if you could tell us a bit more about Starmine and and, and again, how, how quants use it to, to make money in their models. So yeah, at Starmine, we combine classic quant with, with data science and ML and AI to build clear box uh, stock selection and risk mitigation models. And as you said, we are best known for our ranking of sell-side analysts and our development of smart estimates. And these smart estimates are used as input to a lot of our stock selection or alpha models. Our most famous model is uh, analyst revisions model, uh, which finished 20 years in 2021. And, and we take a lot of pride in it. It's one of the few models which I have personally seen to work so well for, for such a long time. For my own background, I'm an engineer by training. I joined quantitative finance right after my engineering PhD from University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Prior to Starmine, I was quantitative strategist and research analyst for, for two small hedge funds. Both the places, the flagship product were equity-focused, long-shot market-neutral portfolios. And one of the perks of being at small funds is you, you get to work on what I call as the, the three most important pillars of active portfolio management. Like we build stock selection models, we, we build risk models, and then we combine the two of them together to, to, to manage our portfolios. 
So yeah, that's that's bit about me, and I'm equally excited to be on this podcast with with you and Nirav. So Tarun, before we turn back to to Nirav, which we'll do in a second. So for example, if I am developing a quantitative trading model and I want to do it based off of which analysts are kind of on a hot streak, so to speak, which guys are out there getting it right, that is, you know, I would get in touch with you and you would uh, basically give me access to the models that would allow me to track correlation between which analysts are getting it right. Is that the sort of thing you might expect? We don't share the model. We rank the analysts. We have our proprietary approach. So the entire framework back in the day was was used by a lot of these brokerage houses to rate their own analysts, you know. So we came up with this statistically rigorous framework, which looks at the historical performance of the analyst. So there there are a lot of biases that analysts have. So even when you have a, a very high revision, it's very likely that most analysts revise it slowly. You know, nobody wants to stick their neck out and come up with that big revision all at once, you know, you have their reputational risk and what if you are wrong? So, you know, they they do those things in increments. So we identified all those biases through data and came up with a process which would allow us to rate them. And again, the, the one bias was how they disseminate information. The other bias is what is called as the coverage universe. You know, as an analyst, especially when you are starting your career, you don't get to choose the stocks that you are going to cover. So, you know, versus somebody who is in the thick of it, you know, they would want to cover the stocks, which gives them the maximum reward. So if you're comparing an analyst who didn't get to choose his coverage universe with somebody who, who could decide what he wants to cover, you know, it's not a fair comparison because the opportunity set was different. So we took into account these different biases mm. and these different constraints that, that analysts have when they cover a universe and provide their estimates. And we, we combined all of that to come up with what we called as, and uh, it's very well acknowledged in the industry as well, unbiased estimator of their accuracy. And the most important empirical result there was this accuracy persists. Mm. You know, those who are smart, they continue to be smart. And those who are not smart, they exhibit this herding behavior. You know, they wait for the smartest analyst to make their revision, and then they all would make revisions in the same direction as well. I remember when I was being on the sell side, we always had to be very cautious of any sell side analyst who was covering a, a company who was a client of the firm, because you could almost guarantee they'd have a buy rate, a buy rating on the stock. And, you know, those sort of things you, you can't do much about, but those are things you have to be wary of. Yes, yes, absolutely. So Nirav, let's, what I love to do on this podcast is do a bit of then and now uh, and try and bring people up to speed on where the world of quantitative trading was 10, 15, 20 years ago and where we are today. And I'm sure people listening to this will be aware of Jim Simons, who kind of like started it all off with Renaissance. So what have been the permutations of quantitative trading over the years and kind of where are we today? So if I just take a step back and start with, you know, what are the goals of quantitative investing? What what do we quants try to achieve? There are four main objectives there. Uh, the ultimate objective is to make returns uh, for clients. That's the ultimate objective. Uh, that's done first through alpha generation to find new sources of returns which are consistent across, you know, through dislocation opportunities, through arbitrage opportunities, or through data-driven alpha signals uh, to systematically apply risk management to manage risk and exposures in the face of quickly changing markets, uh, to use technology and algorithms to make data-driven decisions quickly, 
It allows us to capitalize on speed and efficiency. And finally, you know, to have diversification. So to apply these models, algorithms across various asset classes and markets to find alpha. So these objectives for quants over time has not changed over, right? They still remain the same, but the means to achieve these objectives have changed. And the two, two big differences that have happened uh, now versus the past is first is the integration and the use of more and more AI and machine uh, learning driven models. So the kind of statistical techniques that were being used are a lot more advanced today compared to 10 years ago. And second was use of large amounts of unstructured alternative data sets. Data is always integral to a quantitative investment process. And we've evolved over time from market data to fundamental based data to technical data to now a lot of alternative based data sets. You mentioned one of the goals of quantitative trading is obviously a return. To what extent does volatility in returns play a part? Would you rather make 10% in a year with a nice steady line climbing all the way through, 12% in a year with your returns going from plus 15 to minus five? Just just to give a sense of that in terms of a sharp ratio, I guess. No, I, I would not be an objective sort of uh, uh, at liberty to speak directly about returns, but the objective always is to make returns which are steady and uh, to take advantage of so volatility helps. So volatility in markets help quants, uh, not necessarily the volatility of returns. So what I mean to say is, for example, if the markets are very volatile, there are a lot of dislocation opportunities that arise uh, within the markets, which may be temporary. And quants using their systematic processes are able to take advantage of these dislocations. So volatility in markets may not necessarily be bad, but then, you know, Taking advantage of that systematically, the objective is to not have volatility in returns. Mm. And Tarun, uh, Nirav was just saying that AI has obviously changed a lot within the industry. And to what extent or how do you use large language models, uh, artificial intelligence in, in, in what you do? Yes. So Nirav mentioned about this return forecasting, which I think is the most important problem in quantitative investing. My personal view on return forecasting is it's still a small data science problem. So you have state-of-the-art ML and AI algos at your disposal, and a lot of them are are provided these days in this so-called low-code, no-code environment. But think of uh, cross-sectional assets like equities or convertible bonds. You're looking at, you know, uh, let us say 65,000 public companies for equities, and you have their 30 years of data. And most quant research, this alpha research, uh, it's done on monthly data, you know? So 30 years of data, monthly data, it still adds up to like a couple of hundred thousand data points, which is is small in my personal opinion, you know? Uh, So you could have as many number of predictors as you want, you know, it could be fundamental, it could be alternative data, but what you are forecasting is is a very limited data set unless you are a high frequency trading firm or you are building these trading algos where you have data available every microsecond or millisecond you know it's still a small data science problem so for such cases one has to be very careful in using machine learning models that's that's my personal view 
On the other hand, when it comes to event predictions, identifying bankruptcies or assessing credit risk, Starmine was, I think, probably one of the first group to have come up with a text mining based credit model. And we released it as a product back in 2011, long before, you know, this alternative data was called cool. So we, we used the brokerage research and used a simple naive base, which is a generative algo. In naive base, you, you look at the last word and you try to forecast the very next word. That was the algo we used and it worked just as fine. You know, of course, now you have deep neural network based thing, which we have used and they have certain advantages. But if you knew what you were doing and you had data available to you, one could do a lot of these things pretty early on. So in, in even prediction now, uh, we have this uh, merger and acquisition target model where we are combining fundamental data with alternative data. So we have used an LLM, we've used BERT which provides you the context. You know, this is an LLM that allows you to get the context, whether you are reading left to right or right to left. Like if you do traveling from India to USA or traveling USA to India, if you miss the two in between, it completely loses the context. And we use that BERT model to process this textual information that we have for companies and used it to, to assess their uh, likelihood of being acquired in the next 12 months. So we, we've had good success using these LLMs and state-of-the-art ML and AI in event prediction. When it comes to stock selection models, uh, we still rely on our older approach, which is we try to understand as much as possible to what is going in and its reproducibility and its robustness. So yes, you you do get that nonlinearity from from ML and AI models, but you know nothing comes for free. You know there is this no free lunch theorem. So if you're seeing higher returns and you cannot assess where they are coming from, then I think uh, it's it's little less useful than you know you know where is it coming from because that allows you to first understand that risk and then eventually manage it when you are using it in your mm. portfolio construction. And Nirav, turning the conversation back to you, I do want to delve more deeply into how you go about building a quant research team and how you go about hiring the right people to design these models. But first of all, seeing as we're talking about AI, can you talk a little bit more specifically because artificial intelligence is a, a kind of a catch-all word. Um, but for example, are your employees using chat GPT? Are they using large language models and how are they using them? So the AI models have been around since a long time. What has changed is the just sheer kind of models that are available today. Uh, and, you know, they are now being used across various aspects of the investment process, alpha generation, risk management and asset allocation portfolio construction. And you could look for particular words and see how many times they're used and pick up on sentiments of the CEO or whatever. Yes. So you can sort of give a score on the sentiment. An example that, you know, a very unique example is, say, for online SaaS companies, which is software companies that sell their software online. You know, there are not many sources of alternate data to predict how they are performing. One unique source is user reviews, because a lot of the information about those companies go into those user reviews. So a unique way of using, say, AI on an alternate data set like user reviews is to sort of come up with a sentiment score on the user review, look at a time series of that and see, is there any information in there? Is there any predictive power on the performance of the companies based on the user reviews? 
So that's an example of how something like an NLP or a chat GPT get, can get used on alternative data sets. And moving on to actually building out a team, Nirav, I actually have been reading more and more articles of people saying that they're struggling to find talent, and maybe that's always been the case. But when it comes to you hiring, are you looking for people with more scientific backgrounds? Um, do you have engineers that work for you? Who are the sort of kinds of people you're looking for? So, you know, we very strongly believe that for innovation, diversity is important and diversity, not just in terms of race or gender, but also in terms of academic backgrounds. So when we look at people or quants, we look for people across a large number of physical fields. So they could be you know, PhDs in astrophysics working on large amounts of telescope data. They could be uh, PhDs in biology working on large amounts of DNA or gene data, applying a lot of their machine learning statistical techniques to say, identify relationship between DNA and diseases, things like that. So we, we hire people from various academic backgrounds who have experience typically working on large amounts of data. And to add to that, you know, I think one core skill that is often that we look at is the ability to program and use tools like Python to work on the data is critical in this particular role. You know, so we specifically look for people who are very comfortable with programming. Today, with the advent of tools from the AI-based programming tools, it's actually become extremely easy for anybody to code very easily. You can actually give you know, simple instruction in English to a chat GPT-based tool or a Codium-based tool or an AWS Whisperer-based tool, where simple English instructions are converted into code by that tool. So ability to code and work with large amounts of data is a very critical skill. In addition to that, another thing that cons need is data engineers and programmers uh, just to be able to build the data lake and the data infrastructure that would be needed to apply a lot of these techniques. Now, final question to you, Nirav, on, on the hiring side of things, because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this podcast who'll be interested in getting into this world. So when it comes to interviewing with someone like yourself for a job, do they come in and it's problems on the board that you try to get them to solve? Or are there actual personality traits that you look for as well? Like what's the sort of character of person you're looking for? So just to sort of complete, we do look at the technical skills that I mentioned, which is ability to work with data, programming, and statistical skills. As part of our interview process, we actually have a, a live test case uh, or a case study, uh, which the interviewee sort of solves while somebody is with them on a call. To understand the thought process, it's like a research case study that gets given. Um, in terms of soft skills, what we do, uh, you know, we look for is obviously strong communication skills to be able to interpret the analysis and the results. And also attention to detail. I think when you're working with large amounts of data and a lot of these machine learning AI models, uh, having attention to detail is a very important skill that we look for. Tarun, turning it over to you, having done quite a few of these podcast episodes now, it seems to me that a lot of hedge funds who may have been more focused on macro or more, more focused on equity long short are looking for other strategies to, to move on into. Do you feel that there are more hedge funds moving into the quant space? And how do you see growth in that area? You know, they are on a constant search to find uncorrelated assets. Assets which when are you when you say they are on a constant search, do you feel like that's a generic uh, a comment fund, about uh, hedge funds uh, in general? Yeah. Yes. 
Yes, you know, because when, when your objective is to maximize returns, as Nira was saying, or maximize risk-adjusted returns when you take into account for, for volatility, right? So you do want to, to look at assets because if you are a value-focused fund and you know value isn't working, so the maximum you could do is you you can manage your your downside risk you know unless it's it's mandated that you could only be taking bets for value there are no real opportunities for you to to make money you know to to get those returns so there is this this constant search and if your mandate allows you to do so uh, i think you would do it and it could come from using options to to using macro as you said like uh, doing currencies, treasuries, or commodities. So we we do see that shift. And as somebody who's who's been on the product side where we sell these products, we do get asked these questions, you know, how is your stock selection model is correlated with this other asset class? Because what happens is, especially when the market is volatile, I mean, uh, like it or not, lot of these assets start to become correlated. You know, the negative correlation between equities and bond, it works when things are sane, you know. But when the market becomes volatile and you need to add something else, you see that they are highly correlated. So it is whatever little I have seen uh, in those six years when I was at a hedge fund, switching between like understanding macro, although we were managing an equity portfolio was a very integral part of that risk attribution. Back then, it used to be oil prices and, uh, you know, the the CPI, the inflation and the related things. But finding these assets which are uncorrelated to to your uh, strategy and then coming up with strategies to to incorporate it in your portfolio optimization is, is something that I think almost all the hedge funds would want to do to, to navigate, uh, you know, these choppy waters to say that. Yeah. So Nirav, that, um, that brings up an interesting point, actually. I've always wondered um, when it comes to quants, to what extent any human intervention is allowed. If something happens, call it a, a black swan type event, a war breaks out, something that most models don't really have. I mean, things can happen which are just beyond the realms of prediction. To what extent do you have a committee in place to step in and say, okay, we're now not going to let the models run money. We're stepping in and we're pulling back. To what extent do you have those practices in place? So we we have an investment committee that is constantly monitoring the portfolio, that is constantly monitoring the models. That is a continuous process. Having said that, any kind of human intervention for us is viewed as bad. So, you know, human intervention in our strategies is very, very minimal. It can happen. So, for example, uh, as the talk for Russia invading Ukraine was picking up, the investment committee sort of picked in and decided not to invest or take positions out of all positions out of Russia uh, and across FX equities and same with Ukraine. So, such Swap that's one events, the investment committee will come in and take decisions, but that's rare. Only under cases when we know that the kind of risk that is being considered is not considered by uh, as part of mm. the models. So other than those very exceptional events, you do need to have nerves of steel. You do need to be able to sit back and trust the models. Yes. And I think just, you know, having done this for uh, 10 years now, I would not contest that conclusion. 
the conclusion what we have seen is let the models run if you've done your if you've done our bit in sort of very carefully calibrating the models in terms of risk calibrating it uh, you know testing it over time periods across asset classes and constantly monitoring it any kind of human intervention is bad the models self are just uh, you know we do use a lot of ai based uh, dynamic allocations within our models that mm. adjust based on the environment so as the environment for different type of signals become bad or worse the allocations to those models self adjust so human intervention is bad right the investment committee constantly monitors but very rarely interjects so Nirav, do you have the same kind of rules and regulations when it comes to your relationship with prime brokers as, for example, a long short equity hedge fund would have with their prime broker? Or do you, because of how fast you can trade or perhaps you have lower volatility on average, you can have more leverage from, from prime brokers? How does that relationship work? Uh, the relationship at a very high level is similar and in line with most hedge funds. You know, there are risk parameters that have been agreed with the prime broker. Uh, the positions are within those risk parameters. The prime, the prime brokers do an extensive due diligence uh, before onboarding a client or a fund. So, you know, a lot of these parameters are sort of agreed in advance and parameterized both within our models and at the prime broker side. During the same conversation, we actually had a very interesting discussion around the topic of whether a hedge fund can ever become too big. In fact, Mithra, uh, on a previous call, she said one of the first questions she'll ask, you know, a founding partner like yourself who's starting a hedge fund is, how big do you want to be? Because at some point, for whatever reason, liquidity constraints, volatility constraints, you you hit a ceiling. So do you, you've obviously asked yourselves those questions, um, Nirav, but um do you think there comes a point where a hedge fund can come too big? So I think the important parameter to remember is at what size do your performance get affected? So, for example, you know, for one of our product, which uh, is sort of which works on faster signals and, you know, uses a lot of these AI ML techniques, we have, you know, that the capacity is limited and that's deliberate because the objective is to maintain a higher sharp so to answer your question as long as the capacity depends on making sure that the alpha or the performance of the product does not get impacted and that would depend on the asset classes being traded and also on the kind of signals that are being used to trade them believe it or not we are already coming towards the end of the podcast but not but not quite yet so tarun i'd like to uh, turn it back to you and ask a slightly more general question which is when you speak to clients, what are the current challenges you feel they face today, ranging from trying to find the right talent, even keeping up pace with the new technologies in the world of AI? What are you? What sort of requests are you getting from clients to try and help them get get edge? Uh, so we have two types of clients. One is small to mid size quant shops. Uh, Could you, you, can you know, actually say not what's a small to mid-sized quant shop, just to give our listeners an idea? Um, yes. So uh, anywhere from, you know, less than half a billion, $500 million uh, mm. AUM. So those are what I call a small to, to mid-sized clients. So for them, the biggest challenge that we hear or the reason they come to us is to to evaluate this buy versus build question. You know, for them to build a research team in-house 
and then uh, build a strategy and launch a product versus buying models from us. You know, so for for these shops, that's what we uh, get the most. Like they would want to understand how the model works. We we build clear box models. We write white papers and we we tell them the anomaly that we are trying to capture. And then we as well estimate this capacity constraint, you know, or is it a strategy that only works for these small cap names or whatever? So these are the type of things that they would want us to, to help them with, you know, explain the model, explain the research we did. And if they like it, they would buy it from us and would not have a big research team in-house who would essentially be doing. So we become their you know, team of PhDs who's already done mm. the research and have explained them the results and then they, they just buy it from us. On the other spectrum, for big clients, they have a tendency, uh, those who manage, you know, billion dollar and above to, to buy the raw data and build everything in-house. So they would not be using our models to, to directly trade. So there they, they use our models as these derived analytics that they would want to combine with their strategy and, and, and see if they see any residual value add. So these are at a very high level, you know, two ways where we, we cater this entire spectrum of, of uh, uh, quant clients. And Nirav, perhaps just a final question to you. Is there such thing as a better environment for quantitative strategies? And perhaps you can also just follow up by saying things you're most excited about in this in this world and what kind of um, new ideas you're working on to, to try and maintain that edge. So I think, you know, there are environments for certain strategies, absolutely. Uh, there could be strategies that are designed to provide downside protection during periods of market stress. So in periods of market stress, they do well. So for example, that environment is well for that. There could also be environments that do that are exciting for certain types of signals uh, within a strategy. And you know, based on the environment, those signals do well. So, and it all depends on how the strategy is constructed uh, to take advantage of that. I think the three big things that we are very excited about is one, the technological advantages uh, uh, and the innovation that is happening and the use of more and more AI ML-based techniques that are becoming available and the large variety of tools uh, that are being available in the market today. The pace of innovation is very fast. So we're very excited about that. As humans, we are generating more and more amounts of data. And that has led to the availability of a lot of alternative data sets and big data, which is again exciting uh, from an opportunity perspective. And then I think third is sort of a move towards faster signals. And that is, again, something that's really exciting for us. Well, to you both, I feel like we've touched on a lot of areas, but we could go into so much more detail. I forgot to ask you at the beginning, but if people did want to get in touch, are they okay to reach out to you on LinkedIn or, or however is best? Yes, absolutely. Yes, LinkedIn would be the best. LinkedIn would be the best. Okay, great. Well, I think at some point we need to do a part two of this episode because there was so much to unpack, but we've run out of time. I want to say to Tarun, thank you very much indeed. And to Nirav Shah, thank you so much indeed. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Likewise, Jimmy. So thanks everyone for listening. That was another episode of Hedge Fund Huddle. And if you don't already like or follow us, please do so now. It's exactly how you hear about our next episodes. Also, we want to hear from you. So again, feel free to write to us or leave a review. 
The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any definitive entity to the listener. The views expressed in the podcast are not necessarily those of LSEG, and LSEG is not providing any investment, financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. Neither LSEG nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any and all liability, therefore, whether direct or indirect, is expressly disclaimed. For further information, visit the show notes of this podcast on lseg.com.